In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. Seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harrys.com gold for a $3 trial set. Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. The Peter Schiff Show. Today's podcast is sponsored by Avast. Avast's new all-in-one solution, Avast One, helps you take control of your safety and privacy online through a range of features. You can learn more about Avast One at avast.com. Today's podcast is also sponsored by Shopify. Shopify is a platform designed for anyone to sell anywhere, giving entrepreneurs like myself the resources once reserved for only the biggest businesses. For a free 14-day trial and full access to Shopify's entire suite of features, go to shopify.com gold. Stocks and bonds got beaten up again this week, and in fact, it would have been worse had the markets been open today on Friday, but investors got spared a bit because they kind of rang the bell early. We had a shortened week due to observance of the Good Friday holiday today. By the way, this evening is also the first night of Passover, so let me wish all of my listeners a happy Easter, a happy Passover. By the way, this is the 8th hundredth episode of the Peter Schiff Show podcast. And I certainly want to thank everybody for listening, especially those of you who have listened to all 800 episodes. I know you guys are out there. In fact, some people tell me they listen more than once. Sometimes they listen to the episodes two or three times. So hopefully you guys stick around for another 800 or at least stick with me till 1000. That will be a big milestone for the podcast. Hopefully we'll have a lot more listeners by the time I get to my 1000th episode. I think we're going to have a lot more 
action in the financial markets over the next 200 Peter Schiff Show podcasts. So you definitely don't want to miss them. There's going to be a lot of opportunities for me to comment on a lot of my predictions that have yet to come true, but I think will pretty much all come true over the course of the next 200 episodes. But let me start this episode with a recap of what happened in the markets because the bond market got obliterated again on Thursday. I mean, maybe since investors knew they couldn't sell on Friday, they had to sell extra hard on Thursday. I mean, the bond market is pretty much going down almost every day. I mean, you have a few days where you get a little bit of relief, but in general, bonds are continuing to go down. And I have been warning about this on my podcast since before the bond market started to fall. I've been warning investors that bonds are riskier than stocks. And if my only choice was U.S. stocks and U.S. bonds, I would pick U.S. stocks. Now, fortunately, those aren't my only two choices. I have alternatives to both, which are doing very well this year as U.S. stocks and bonds are going down. But bonds are going down the most. Again, look at the yields. Two-year treasuries now at two spot four five. Five-year at two spot seven nine. The 10-year is at two spot eight three. And the 30-year two spot nine one. Almost at 3% yield on the 10 and 30. This is the first time We've been above 2.8 on the 10 and above 2.9 on the 30. But I think we're going to top 3% next week once the market reopens on Monday. In fact, I think there is a lot of risk here of a Black Monday. Now, most likely we won't get that because it's very rare to get a big crash. But a crash is coming because if the bond market doesn't crash, the stock market will. And if the bond market does crash, well, then the stock market is going to crash too. So either way, at some point, you're going to get some kind of crash. So we'll see because the bond charts look horrible. And in fact, the last time yields were above 3% on the 10-year or the 30-year, it was 2018. And the target Fed funds rate at that time was two and a quarter to two and a half. So that was the highest the Fed was able to raise rates and they had to start cutting them because that 3% yield was doing a lot of damage to the economy as were the two and a quarter to two and a half percent Fed funds. Well, the Fed funds is still at 0.25 to 0.5 now. The Fed has only hiked rates once by 25 basis points and we're already almost at three percent in fact we'll be there i think by next week so yields are already where they were when the fed funds rate was two percent higher than it is right now so a that means that if the fed actually succeeds in raising short-term rates back up to two and a quarter two and a half by then the yields on the 10-year and the 30-year should be above five percent does anybody believe that the economy can handle 5%? We couldn't even handle 3% in 2018 when we had a lot less debt than we have now. But what should really be scaring investors in both the stock and this bond market is how quickly rates are up to 3% 
and the Fed has barely started to move, and we've already reached the level where the economy broke down in 2018 because of how much interest rates have already risen. Well, we've already gotten to the rate where a even less leveraged economy broke down, and the Fed is just starting the rate hiking cycle, not ending it, because in 2018, when rates were at 3%, the Fed stopped raising interest rates and began to cut rates. At this point, the Fed is just beginning to raise rates. And in fact, the other thing that they haven't even begun yet, but they're still talking about, is quantitative tightening. That's set to start in May, but here we are in mid-April, and the Fed is still doing quantitative easing. The balance sheet is continuing to expand. We got the data on Thursday on the Fed's balance sheet. It expanded by another $27.9 billion. We're now at a new record high, $8.965 trillion. We'll probably get over $9 trillion for the first time next week. The question is, if the Fed is talking about fighting inflation and they're serious, why do they continue to create inflation? If the Fed is really going to aggressively shrink its balance sheet, why does it continue to expand its balance sheet? And if the U.S. bond market is this weak when the Federal Reserve is still buying bonds, imagine how much weaker it's going to get when the Federal Reserve not only stops buying, but actually starts selling, which is exactly what they are indicating they are about to do. This is why I'm saying that a crash could be imminent in the stock market when stock investors actually come to terms with the reality of what's going on in the bond market and what it portends for the economy and corporate earnings. But I also think bond investors are going to wake up and start selling more aggressively the bonds they already own. Look at the Vanguard bond ETF. The symbol on that thing is BND. Not only was it down about three quarters of a percent on Thursday, it's down 9% on the year. So if you bought this bond fund thinking you were doing something safe with your money, you're already down 9% and we're not even finished with the month of April. The yield on that fund is only 2%. So somebody bought that fund trying to play it safe, trying to get a 2% yield, and they've already lost better than four years of what they hope to gain in income in the depreciation of the shares. Now, you're not down 9% if you bought the fund December 31st because you did collect some dividends. So I think you're only down 8.65% when you factor in the dividend, but that is a huge loss. And now there are a lot of other people that buy bonds as part of a portfolio. There is this 60-40 portfolio that a lot of portfolio managers have recommended. A lot of people are invested, 60% stocks, 40% bonds, the 40% bond portion is supposed to be there to reduce the risk of the portfolio. Well, the bond portfolio is actually down more than the stock portfolio. If you look at the Vanguard total stock index, it's down 8.6% year to date, slightly less than the bond portfolio. So investors got no relief. They have no hedge. The bond gains did not offset stock losses. They actually augmented them. I think a lot of people that are in these portfolios, when they see what they're losing in the bond market, they're probably going to sell their bonds. After all, if bonds are really risky, and they are, and they still have tremendous downside risk from here, if you're going to take a lot of risk, you might as well be in the stock market. 
Because what's the possible upside in bonds? Just the coupon. Inflation is going to more than wipe that out. So more and more people are going to be selling their bonds as bond prices fall, making it that much more difficult for the Fed to shrink its balance sheet without exacerbating the trajectory of these rate hikes and imposing even more pain on the economy and on debtors, in particular, the United States government. And of course, it's not just bonds, it's mortgage rates that are rising. Again, we hit a new 11-year high on Thursday for the national average for a 30-year fix. I think it's 507. A week ago, it was 472. A year ago, the national average was at an all-time low, I think 3.04% for a 30-year fixed. That means that the price of a 30-year fixed rate mortgage is up 67% in one year. Think about that. And imagine if that increase was part of the CPI. 67%, that's a price, the price of a mortgage, that price has gone up 67%. That is massive for people who are taking out mortgages. That is a price increase. Why is that not part of the CPI? Well, obviously, it would really blow the lid right off the CPI. So, of course, they're not going to include it. They would rather include owner's equivalent rent, which is something nobody pays, as opposed to actual rent or actual mortgages, which everybody pays. Avast empowers you with digital safety and privacy, no matter who you are, where you are, or how you connect. Enjoy the opportunities that come with being connected, only do it on your own terms. Avast's new all-in-one solution, Avast One, helps you take control of your safety and privacy online through a range of features. You can learn more about Avast One at avast.com. Features like Avast Antivirus, award-winning antivirus that stops viruses and malware from harming your devices. Data breach monitoring, enable you to find out if your online activity has been compromised or whether your passwords need to be changed. And firewall protection, keeping personal information secure and preventing attacks that seek to access your computers or steal your data. I've successfully used Avast myself for years to secure my data. In fact, Avast One prevents over 1.5 billion attacks every month. So now you can confidently take control of your online world without worrying about viruses, phishing attacks, ransomware, hacking attempts, or other cyber crimes. You can learn more about Avast One at Avast.com. But moving from the bond market to the stock market, which was down, in fact, it was a pretty bad day on Thursday. It should have been worse, and it may be worse on Monday and next week, but the Dow was down about a third of a percent on the day, held up pretty well on the week, although it was a down week. It was down about eight-tenths of one percent, but the Dow Jones is still down 6.8 percent from its high, not down as much as the bond market, but still down. The S&P fared worse. It was down 1.2 percent Thursday, down 2.1 percent on the week, and it's now down 8.8 percent from its highs. I think next week could be pretty bad, so we could easily be back in correction territory for the S&P next week. The Nasdaq got clobbered on Thursday, down 2.3%. That meant it was down 3% on the week, and it's now back down 17.2% from its high. Not quite into bear market territory again yet, but this is a bear market in the Nasdaq, and I believe we will be down in excess of 20% next week 
Russell 2000 also down 1% on Thursday, but it managed to finish the week up by about a half a percent. It was the only index that was up, but it is down the most from the highs. It's down 18.5%. Interestingly enough, the ARK Innovation ETF, which was down 4.4% on Thursday, and which I think is going to get clobbered next week, was only down 2.7% last week. So it actually outperformed slightly the NASDAQ, but it is down 63% from its high because what was getting beaten up this week was big tech, not little tech, which are the types of stocks that are in the ARK ETF, but the big tech. And in fact, if you look at some of these individual names, the FANG names, Facebook down 2.2% on Thursday, down 45% from its highs. Amazon, down 2.5% on Thursday. It's down 17.4% from the high. Netflix was down 2.7% on Thursday. It's off a whopping 51% from its high. Google, which is now Alphabet, but it's the G in FANG, was down 2.3% on Thursday. It's down 16.3% from the high. Some people like to include Apple as the second A. It was down 3%. On Thursday, only down 9% from its highs, but stock is headed lower. It's a very widely owned popular stock. And these are the names that are getting clobbered because they are the names that did the best when the bubble was filling up with air and they're going to do the worst as the air is seeping out. A couple of other big names that I wanted to note. NVIDIA, very popular stock, down 4.3% Thursday down 39% from its highs. Applied material down 3% on Thursdays. It's 32% from its highs. Of course, not just these tech stocks coming down. The Grayscale Bitcoin Trust GBTC was down 2.4% on Thursday. So it was down 4.4% on the week. It's 51% below its high. And I think more importantly for you Bitcoin holders as a Warning sign, Coinbase down another 5% on Thursday, hitting a new all-time record low since the stock went public. It was down 8.5% on the week, and Coinbase is now 66% below its high. It closed Thursday at $1.47.29. This does not bode well for the future of Bitcoin. On the flip side, gold and silver mining stocks Well, they did very well. The GDX was up 3% on Thursday, despite a $3 drop in the price of gold. So you're seeing some strength. Both the GDX and the GDXJ finished Thursday with some modest gains, despite a $3 drop in the price of gold. In fact, gold was down quite a bit more earlier on, but spent most of the day recovering those losses. And in fact, GDX was up 3% on the week and it closed out Thursday at a new 52-week high. GDXJ did even better on the week. It was up 5.4%. Did not close the week at a 52-week high, but I think we will be making new highs soon. In fact, the price of gold itself, which as I said, was down 3% on Thursday, did finish the week up 25 bucks. We closed at 19.75. Gold is up 7.6% on the year. Silver was up about 80 cents on the week. It closed at 25.66. It's up 10% on the year. So real money, gold and silver heading in the opposite direction of fake money, which would be Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. 
that pretend to be digital gold, but in reality are fool's gold. And the market action that we're seeing is confirming that. It's just that the holders are reluctant to acknowledge what's going on. And it wasn't just big tech too or crypto that got clobbered. The banks are really getting killed. And again, this is something that I was talking about on my podcast. There were so many people on Wall Street that were convinced that higher interest rates were going to be good for the financials, positive for banks. I always warned that that was not the case, that higher interest rates were going to kill banks because it was going to reduce their ability to make loans. You're going to sell fewer loans when you have to charge more money. And it was also going to impede the value of the collateral. Well, once again, I'm being proven correct. Wells Fargo down 4.5% on Thursday. It's now down 23% from its high. Bank of America down 3.2% on Thursday. It's 26% off its highs. JP Morgan only down 1% Thursday, but it's 27% below its highs. Even the darling Goldman Sachs, it actually fared pretty well. Thursday was only down a tenth of a percent, but it too is down 26% from its highs. So all of the banks solidly in bear markets, despite the fact that the Fed is raising rates. And in fact, I think it's partially because the Fed is raising rates and the Fed is clearly going to raise rates more, which means there's a lot more downside in these banks. The only question is, when is the Fed going to stop raising rates? We don't know the answer to that yet, but I think we'll soon find out. But one thing I think I know for sure is they're never going to be able to follow through with the commitments that they've already made because the only reason that they are making those commitments in the first place is because they're convinced that the economy is strong enough to take it. As a public person, I am hyper aware of safety and security. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays offline. Delete Me is a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web, and in the process, helps prevent potential ID theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts will take it from there. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports showing what information they found, where they found it, and what they removed. Delete Me isn't just a one-time service. Delete Me is always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information that you don't want on the internet. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. Now at a special discount for my listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com gold and use the promo code gold at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash gold and enter code gold at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash gold, code gold. We all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. At times, therapy has helped me and my loved ones in many ways. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. With the right guide, you can discover effective strategies to minimize distractions and truly connect with your needs, setting the stage for a more balanced life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, Convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a licensed 
licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com slash gold today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot slash gold. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. I mean, first of all, I was listening to Fed Governor Waller. He was interviewed on CNBC. And basically, he was asked a question about why he expects the Federal Reserve will be able to fight off inflation without hurting the economy. Because after all, his history has shown that this really can't be done, that when the Fed does have to fight inflation, it does impact the economy. The economy typically goes into a recession as a result of an inflation fight. And what Waller said was he does not expect history to repeat because he believes this time it's different with respect to the economy. He basically said that we've never really fought inflation when the economy was this strong, that we've never had such a strong job market. And therefore, that really makes the Fed's job of fighting inflation easy because it's not really going to hurt this super strong economy that it can easily withstand these interest rate hikes. Well, first of all, this shows you how clueless Waller is about the U.S. economy because the U.S. economy is in actuality never been more vulnerable to rising interest rates than it is right now. An inflation fight will take a much bigger toll on this massive bubble economy than it's ever taken in the past. Waller just doesn't get that. I mean, first of all, part of it is because he thinks that the Fed only has to raise rates to 2.5% or 3% in order to vanquish inflation. Not even close. Rates are going to have to go much higher this time because the Fed waited much longer and got much further behind the curve. We've never had a situation where inflation is this bad. And I'm going to get to more inflation numbers that came out in a minute. But we've never had this much inflation. The Fed has never been so far behind the curve. So to think that we could just raise rates to the levels that we've raised them in the past when we weren't this far behind the curve, when inflation was no more than 2 or 3%, and now it's 8 9%, and to think that we can raise rates to the same level. In fact, you hear all these Fed governors talking about neutral. We got to get to neutral. And they all define neutral as about 2 2.5%. How is that neutral when inflation is 9%? That was neutral when inflation was 2%, but it can't be neutral now. You have to adjust neutrality for the circumstances. And so what used to be neutral in a low inflation world is not neutral in a high inflation world. It's actually stimulative. You're actually continuing to throw gasoline on an inflation fire when you're artificially suppressing interest rates and keeping real yields negative. So these guys at the Fed still haven't come to terms with that. But Waller and his buddies on the FOMC who think the economy is so strong think they can withstand these rate hikes if they couldn't withstand them in 2018. There is no way the economy is stronger now than it was in 2018, unless you think that COVID strengthened the economy, unless you think these lockdowns and all the things we did 
since COVID actually helped the economy, that the economy is stronger now after COVID than it was before, like COVID did no damage and none of the things that the government did in response to COVID did any damage? Of course they did. That's why we have so much more debt now than we had before COVID. We had a balance sheet that was closer to $3 trillion because they had been shrinking it. So it was near $3 trillion when 2.5% interest rates caused this market collapse and almost pushed the economy into recession and would have, but for the fact that the Fed stopped hiking rates and started to cut them, which it originally said was a mid-course correction, but I knew that they were bluffing about that. I called them out on this mid-course correction as soon as they started to say that. But the point is the balance sheet is now triple that. It's almost $9 trillion, not $3 trillion. So how are they going to raise interest rates now when there's so much more debt when they couldn't do it back then? So to believe that this economy is impervious to rate hikes is the ultimate in hubris and ignorance on the part of the Fed. But I think as soon as these guys realize how wrong they are, just like they were wrong about subprime being contained or inflation being transitory, they think this economy is impervious to rate hikes because they think we have this super strong economy when we actually have a massive bubble thanks to the low interest rates. And the minute you take away those low interest rates, you're basically taking the air out of the very bubble that these guys have mistaken for this super strong economy. But also think about this. When it was obvious that inflation was higher than the Fed thought. Why didn't the Fed act preemptively before inflation got this bad? Why didn't they just take out some insurance? Even if they weren't sure, when in doubt, just be conservative because you know how bad it is if you let that inflation genie out of the bottle. So why didn't the Fed do something to make sure the genie stayed in the bottle? Well, the reason they didn't do anything is because they were too afraid of damaging the economy by preemptively going after inflation. That shows you that they knew that the economy was vulnerable to higher interest rates. That's why they refrained from raising them. That's why they continued quantitative easing, even though inflation was already well above their 2% target and looked like it was going to get worse. They were afraid to turn off those monetary spigots because they didn't want to damage the economy. Well, now what makes them think the economy is impervious to that policy? Because if they didn't want to damage the economy before the inflation genie got out of the bottle, why are they willing to damage it now? Because the degree to which the Fed now has to raise rates because they waited so long, the degree to which they now have to shrink the balance sheet because they allowed it to expand so much is much greater. And so whatever damage they didn't want to do to the economy before inflation got out of hand, they're going to have to do even more damage now that it has gotten out of hand. And if they didn't want to inflict a lesser degree of damage in the past, why does anybody believe they're willing to inflict an even greater degree of damage in the future? And why do they even claim that they're willing to do it when they obviously weren't, when it might have made a difference? Now, of course, we would have had a crisis regardless. This bubble was so big, had the Fed acted preemptively, there would have been a crash, which is exactly why they didn't do it. But that doesn't mean they can act now and we avoid that crash. No, we have an even bigger crash, which is why I'm convinced that they are not going to carry through with this threat. The only question is, when are they going to pivot? Looking at some of the other markets, oil had a strong week. It was up 9%. It ended the week at $106 
and 38 cents. The price of oil is now up 40% on the year. Of course, President Biden likes to blame it all on Putin, but oil prices are only up about 15% since Russia invaded the Ukraine. They're up just over 100% since Biden took the oath of office. So maybe at best you can say 15% of the price hikes are Putin price hikes. But even that I don't think is true because given the rate at which oil prices were rising before Russia invaded the Ukraine, there's no reason to believe they would have stopped rising. So a good portion of that 15% increase since the invasion would have happened anyway. So the reality is very little, if any, of the increase in oil prices is the result of Putin. It's the result not only of Biden, but of Congress and the Federal Reserve. Of course, the Biden administration doesn't want to acknowledge that. They want to blame somebody else. But looking at the polling numbers, looking at the record low approval ratings for Joe Biden, a lot of the voters are just not buying what he's trying to sell. The one market, though, that continues to defy my expectations is the U.S. dollar. The dollar was up again on the week. In fact, we closed at a new high from the move. Last week, we closed at 99 spot 78 on the dollar index. On Thursday, we closed at 100 spot 55. So I don't think that this dollar rally can sustain itself. And I do expect this to reverse. And when I think the dollar is really going to get clobbered is when the Fed does pivot. Because once that pivot occurs, then I think all the supports get knocked out of the dollar and people start to understand the gravity of the situation because the Fed is going to pivot not because it's won the fight against inflation, but because its fight against inflation pushed the economy into recession, pushed the markets into bear markets. And so the Fed gives up its fight against inflation in order to prop up the markets, in order to fight to stimulate the economy. So in other words, the Fed surrenders and inflation wins. And when that happens, the dollar loses. And when the dollar loses, that's when I expect my investment strategies to really kick into a new gear, even though they're doing well now against the headwind of a strong dollar They'll do much better with the tailwind of a weak dollar. In fact, both of my income and value funds finished the week positive. In fact, they closed on new 52-week highs. Those funds up about 11% so far year to date in sharp contrast with the losses in the U.S. stock and bond market. Investors are making money investing overseas despite a strong dollar. Imagine how much more profitable overseas investing will be when you've got a weak dollar fueling your gains. Ka-ching! You gotta love that sound. It's the sound of another sale being made on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify lets you discover your possibilities. Shopify unlocks the opportunities of your business to more people every day. Every 28 seconds, another entrepreneur makes their first sale on Shopify. So supercharge your knowledge, your sales, and your success. For a free 14-day trial, go to shopify.com gold, all lowercase. Shopify is a platform designed for anyone to sell anywhere, 
giving you the resources once reserved for just the biggest businesses and it's customized for you with a great looking online store that brings your idea to life and provides you with the tools to manage and drive sales. Making your ideas real opens endless possibilities. In fact, I love how Shopify makes it easy for anyone to successfully run a small business. Shopify powers millions of entrepreneurs from their first sale to full scale. And every 28 seconds, another small business owner makes their first sale on Shopify. So get started by building and customizing your online store with no coding or design experience. Access powerful tools to help you find customers, drive sales, and manage your day-to-day. Get knowledge and confidence with the resources you need to succeed. Plus, with 24-7 support, you're never alone. It's more than just a store. Shopify grows with you. This is the possibility, and it's powered by Shopify. So go to shopify.com gold all lowercase, to get your free 14-day trial and to get full access to Shopify's entire suite of features. So start selling on Shopify today. Go to shopify.com gold right now. We also got more economic data that came out during the week. On my last podcast, I talked about the CPI data. Well, since then, we've got the PPI numbers, and they also came out hotter than expected March producer prices rose by eight-tenths of 1% in February, were expected to increase by 1.1% in March. Well, not only did we revise the February number higher to up 0.9, but the March number came out at plus 1.4%, and that means that the year-over-year increase in producer prices is 11.4%. 2% were solidly in double digits. The year-over-year increase in February was revised higher from 10% to 10.3%. But of course, that also means that producers continue to eat some of the cost increases that they have yet to pass on to consumers because year-over-year consumer prices are up 8.5%. Not only does this prove Elizabeth Warren is wrong and that greedy businesses are not gouging their customers, but they're actually allowing their customers to gouge them because the businesses are not passing on all of their cost increases. But this will change. And what this difference means is that in the future, not only are consumers going to have to deal with higher prices due to current inflation, but they're going to have to deal with even bigger price increases as businesses try to catch up with higher costs that they hadn't passed on yet to their customers. If you cancel out food and energy, the so-called core, prices were up 1% on the month, double what was expected, although the prior month's core number was revised down from up 0.7 to up 0.4, but that didn't stop the year-over-year core number from going up from 8.4% in February to 9.2% in March. Again, these year-over-year core numbers are irrelevant because the monthly volatility is already smoothed out when you look at a year. So year-over-year increases are not volatility. They're a trend, so it doesn't even matter. The real number is the headline number. But even if you strip out food and energy, 9.2% is a huge number. This is one of the reasons that the bond market continues to get beaten up because these inflation numbers are getting worse and worse. But again, they don't tell the real story. What does tell the real story are the import-export prices that came out the following day, 
Listen to these numbers. Import prices in the month of March increased by 2.6%. That's one month. The Fed was talking about how they want inflation to be 2%. They want prices to go up by 2% per year. Well, the price of our imports went up by 2.6% in a single month. But as bad as imports are, exports are even worse. Export prices shot up by 4.5% in one month, double the expected gain of 2.2%. Now, again, a lot of people think, who cares about export prices? We're not paying those prices. That's what our trading partners are paying. The important thing is the companies that are producing stuff to export, they're also producing stuff that we don't export. This is a reflection of the increase in the domestic cost of production. And so if the stuff that we're selling our trading partners, if we had to raise prices by 4.5%, it stands to reason that we also had to raise prices for American customers buying the same products. Maybe not quite as much, but pretty close. And look at the year-over-year numbers. Import prices year-over-year up 12.5%. Export prices up 18.8%. That's an incredible increase in those prices. And when you think about it, when consumers are out there shopping and buying stuff, they're either buying stuff that was imported or stuff we made ourselves. Well, the stuff that we imported is up by 12.5% year over year. The stuff we're making ourselves is up by 18.8% year over year. How is it that consumer prices are only up by 8.5? Well, that's because the CPI is manipulated. It gets adjusted. There's substitution, there's hedonics, but none of those adjustments take place when you're looking at import-export prices. It's just, hey, this is the stuff that we imported. Here's how much the price went up. This is the stuff we actually exported, and here's how much the prices went up. So these numbers are real. The government official CPI numbers are make-believe. The real inflation situation is much worse. The prices that we see in these import-export numbers are much more reflective of the actual gains in consumer prices than the official CPI. And what that means is that the real interest rates are actually much lower than the CPI would indicate, and economic growth is actually much weaker. One of the reasons the Fed thinks that we still have a strong economy is because we're not measuring the economy properly. We're not deflating it by a large enough number. So the Fed is confusing inflation with economic growth. And another way that inflation impacts the statistics to make them look better is with retail sales. People were happy. Retail sales came out for the month of March up 0.5%. Yippee, up 0.5%. We're not adjusting it for inflation. And in fact, if you strip out vehicles and gasoline, retail sales were only up 0.2. But how much were prices up? A lot more than that. So retail sales aren't really going up. Americans are spending more money when they buy stuff retail, but they're not buying more stuff. They're buying less and they're paying more. And the problem is they're paying a lot more for gasoline. They're paying a lot more for food. And because they're spending so much of their incomes on necessities, and then you can throw in rent, they have a lot less money left over to buy other stuff 
That's why you saw this big drop in non-retail spending, which is mainly online. Those sales actually collapsed by 6.4% on the month. That is a big deal. Why did online sales collapse in March? Well, because you can't buy gasoline online. Consumers don't have enough money left over to buy stuff online after they finish paying for everything else. In fact, year over year, online sales are only up 1.8%. And again, that's not adjusted for inflation. So adjusted for inflation, online sales are way down, which also calls into question a lot of the valuations of these online businesses when real online sales are actually falling. So what kind of PE are you going to pay for some internet company when their actual sales in real terms are now going down and not going up? And of course, the Federal Reserve likes to blame all of this inflation on Putin, on COVID, on supply chain problems, on shortages. But ironically, one of the reasons that we don't have enough stuff in particular, a lot of these raw materials is because of the Fed. See, because the Fed has kept interest rates so low, it has caused misallocations of resources throughout the economy. The Fed has channeled our savings and investments to fund tech companies or crypto companies or all sorts of speculative investments that never would have attracted capital if the Fed had not artificially suppressed interest rates. A lot of that capital may have been invested in other sectors where we now have big shortages. For example, I was listening to a discussion on CNBC with Steve Leisman, who is their senior economics reporter, and was talking about the fact that mining companies didn't produce enough nickel or enough copper or other type of minerals that are necessary for the production of batteries that are used in electric cars. And he was saying that it's unfortunate that these mining companies weren't able to see this increased demand and prepare for it better by increasing production and making it even crazier. He then opined that he thought it would be good if the government somehow got involved, if we had a government agency that could guide industry, that could have told these mining executives, hey, you guys, you need to start producing more copper. You need to start making more nickel and other types of metals because there's going to be this big boom and demand for electric vehicles and those electric cars are going to need more batteries. So you need to ramp up your production. And I couldn't believe that I was hearing this because this is a new low, even for Steve Leisman, because according to him, entrepreneurs are not smart enough to make these decisions on their own to kind of anticipate what future demand might be and then to adjust their production to meet this demand. No, no, no. We need to substitute the wisdom of bureaucrats. Somehow these government bureaucrats who don't actually run companies, who just have government jobs, they're smart enough to see into the future and they should tell businesses what they should produce and how much they should produce because they know exactly what consumers in the future are going to want because they have government jobs. Look, if people in government were that smart, they wouldn't be working for government. If they knew exactly what people wanted, they would get very rich 
providing it. The reason they have government jobs is because they have no clue what they're doing. And the last thing you want is from bureaucrat to tell some entrepreneur what to produce because you think you know more than he does. The real reason that mining companies weren't able to ramp up production and head of this demand is because A, they couldn't even get the capital because nobody wanted to invest in mines. Why would you when you can make so much more money investing in tech companies? Plus also a lot of these commodity prices were still too low. And so a lot of these projects wouldn't have penciled out given where the prices were. And investors were not willing to invest in the possibility that prices would go up in the future. And so it made sense to invest in expansion now and build more mines and gear up capacity because in the future, the copper price or the nickel price is going to go up. Investors didn't even believe that. Investors wanted to invest in what was already going up. But why were investors' judgments so impaired? Why was it so difficult for mining companies to get the necessary investment to expand capacity? Because of the Fed. The Federal Reserve was guilty of keeping interest rates too low. So the solution that Steve Leisman doesn't seem to understand is not to have more government and to have central planning, but to have less to stop centrally planning interest rates, to get rid of the central planners at the Fed, to let the free market determine interest rates. Because if the free market had determined interest rates, interest rates would have been a lot higher. And had interest rates been a lot higher, we wouldn't have had this misallocation in resources. And we might have had these mining companies with the ability to attract additional capital and make the very investments that Steve Leisman thinks they would have made if only some omniscient government bureaucrat had told them what to produce. Now, another discussion, too, that I was listening to on CNBC, there was a guest on there who actually was at least correct in that he perceived a lot of downside risk in the stock market. And so he was advising people to hold cash. But then the host of the show correctly pointed out, well, but inflation is 9%. How are you going to hold cash when it's losing 9% of its value. And then he responded, well, that's a good point. That's why you can't be all cash. You have to have a lot of your money in stocks. You just have to have some cash. But he just finished explaining why stocks are so overvalued. But then he said, you got to hold them because you're going to lose so much money in cash as if there were no alternatives. It didn't even dawn on this guy or the person interviewing him that if stocks are overvalued, and cash is trash because of inflation, there's got to be an alternative. Well, what about buying some gold? What about foreign stocks? There are a lot of stocks that are not overpriced like U.S. stocks. There are a lot of stocks that pay good dividends outside the United States, but they're so narrow-minded, all they can see is black or white. It's either all in the U.S. stock market or in cash, and there's no place to go. You have an entire world of investment opportunities that you can consider. It doesn't come down to deciding whether you want to lose money in cash or lose money in overpriced U.S. stocks. You can actually make money in underpriced foreign stocks. You can 
preserve your wealth in gold. You don't have to watch it evaporate in cash. But on CNBC, they don't actually understand the real investment alternatives that are out there because they're so narrow-minded in their focus because they're so restrictive in who their guests are. Other than cryptocurrencies, they think that's the only alternative, which is another reason why people should be listening to my podcast to figure out what to do with their money rather than wasting their time on CNBC. The only reason I listen to it is because it gives me great material for my podcast. I want to switch gears, though, and talk a little politics, in particular what's going on with Hunter Biden. It appears that he may be close to being indicted. But what's more important is that it proves that that New York Post story that the mainstream media buried with respect to the contents of his laptop was actually true, that Hunter Biden was, in fact, peddling influence around the world, his father's influence, And Joe Biden not only knew about it, but profited from it personally. All that was true. In fact, probably the most damning piece of evidence. And there's a lot out there, but I was reading one in particular. This was a text message that Hunter Biden sent to his daughter. And I'm just going to read that text. Maybe you haven't heard the news on this one, but this is verbatim. Quote, I hope you all can do what I did and pay for everything for this entire family for 30 years. It's really hard, but don't worry. Unlike Pop, I won't make you give me half your salary. I mean, think about that. There's a Yiddish word, chutzpah, and that's exactly what Hunter Biden has. Now, if you don't know what chutzpah means, the classic example is a guy murders his parents and then... After he is convicted of their murder, he asks the jury for mercy because he's an orphan. Well, that describes what Hunter Biden texts to his daughter perfectly. He is complaining that his father, Joe Biden, is taking half of his income. Well, what is enabling Hunter Biden to make money? He is selling his father's influence. Without his father, he's got nothing. So he's going around peddling his pop's influence, getting paid for that access, and he has the nerve to complain that his father wants a cut of his action. And in fact, as far as I'm concerned, Biden was too generous with Hunter. Joe Biden should have demanded more than half of his kid's income because pretty much all the income was a result of Joe Biden's influence, not the fact that Hunter acted as his agent and went around the world selling it. I mean, if anything, maybe Joe Biden should have cut his kid in for maybe 10 or 15%. I mean, that's generally the type of commission that an agent would earn. And that's really what Hunter Biden was. He was Joe Biden's agent. Joe Biden had the products to sell. He had the influence, except he didn't sell it himself. He hired his son to do the job for him, and he cut him in on 50% of the profits. That was actually a pretty good deal for Hunter Biden, yet he's complaining to his daughter that his father is taking advantage of him by taking half his income. But the bottom line is this proves that Joe Biden knew about it because, after all, 
if his kid is giving him all this money, where does he think the money is coming from? Obviously, Joe Biden knew exactly where the money was coming from. It's not Hunter who should be indicted. It's Joe. Joe Biden should be the one being indicted because he's the one that really did something wrong because he's the one that betrayed his oath of office. He's the one that betrayed his country by using his status for personal gain. Remember, the media constantly accused Donald Trump and his family of using the presidency for their personal gain. Well, Donald Trump's family didn't do this. It was the Biden family. And had this news been accurately covered by the media, Donald Trump would still be president. Joe Biden never would have been elected. And, you know, you hear a lot now about how we have to make sure that these big tech companies, internet companies, police content to make sure that people aren't putting out inaccurate information, that you have to only be honest and truthful. And so it's up to these companies to monitor all their posts to make sure that people aren't putting out disinformation or inaccurate information. Well, the problem is who determines that? Because you had companies like Twitter determined that the story that was published by the New York Post was fake news, that it was inaccurate. And not only was the New York Post's Twitter page suspended for two weeks for putting out with what we now know was a completely truthful story, but Twitter did everything they could to make sure that it buried anybody on Twitter trying to share what it determined on its own to be false information so that it couldn't be shared on its platform. Well, the information was not false. It was true. And that's why you don't want companies deciding what's true and what's not true. Let the public decide for themselves what information they want to believe. And if people put out false information, well, then other people could put out correct information to contradict that. And if some people put out enough false information, then they'll lose their credibility and nobody will believe them in the future. There's a lot of information that's on the internet that I know for a fact is false, but it's out there anyway. What they're really trying to do is use the pretense of having to get rid of false information to advance a political agenda. The political agenda of Twitter was to elect Joe Biden. And so because of that bias, they determined that the New York Post story was fake and they buried the story. But had a similar story come out about Donald Trump, then they wouldn't have buried it at all. In fact, they probably would have highlighted it. It would have been prioritized in all their search engines, which is one of the reasons why it would actually be a good thing if Elon Musk actually bought Twitter. I think he would do a much better job with Twitter. I don't know from a point of view of an investor in the company, although if he bought the company out, there would be no investors. He would own it himself. But I think as a product, I think as a service, I think if Elon Musk owned it, I think it might be a much better forum for the public to express their opinions more freely without having to worry about being deplatformed because they said something that was perceived by the owners to be politically incorrect. Oh, by the way, there's so much in the news now about Elon Musk's offer to buy Twitter. In fact, not only does he own 9% of the company, but he's publicly made an offer to buy all the rest he doesn't own 
at $54.20, just some number he grabbed out of thin air, not because he did any evaluation to determine that that's what it was worth. It was just a number that he liked. And so that is the price. But it's something like $40 billion or so that it would cost to buy Twitter. And even though Elon Musk is the richest man in the world, and on paper, he has a net worth of about $250 billion, the vast majority of that net worth is also paper. It's his stock in mainly Tesla, but also SpaceX. But those shares are not liquid. I mean, he could sell those shares, but imagine how low he would drive the price of Tesla down if he had to sell enough stock to free up enough cash to pay $40 billion to buy Twitter. He would kill the price of that stock. Now, does Elon Musk think that Tesla is so overpriced that he's willing to sell out at whatever he can get just so he can buy Twitter? Some people might think, well, he could go borrow the money. That would be extremely risky. What if he gets a margin call? I mean, tech stocks are going down. High multiple stocks are going down. There certainly is a lot of room for Tesla shares to drop in this environment. Plus, interest rates are rising. Why would you want to borrow so much money in an environment where rates are rising? And if he were to get a margin call and be forced to liquidate his Tesla, he'd get an even worse price than if he just sold it now to free up the cash to buy Twitter, which is why I don't think he has any intention of buying Twitter. And I think it's ridiculous that the media is giving so much coverage to this bid, which is probably one of the reasons that Elon Musk is doing it because he knew that the media would react this way. He's playing everybody like a fiddle. He's having a lot of fun on Twitter. And by the way, he's got a huge paper gain on the Twitter shares that he already bought. And he has a great opportunity now to sell those shares at a profit, which I think he's more likely to do than buy the rest of the shares that he doesn't own, because I don't think he actually has the capacity or the desire to buy Twitter. I think he likes talking about it. And while he's talking about it, he's pumping up the price of a stock that he already owns and is free to sell. In fact, His public statements are that he doesn't trust the current management. He doesn't think the management is going to do a good job with the company, and that's why he wants to buy it all. Well, if he doesn't buy it all and he doesn't like the management, then why would he continue to hold his stock? He wouldn't. He would sell his stock. And so if I owned any shares of Twitter, I would be selling those shares right now. Take advantage of the fact that the price has already run way up based on A, Elon Musk first taking a position and now bluffing that he wants to buy the whole company. In fact, if I was on the board of Twitter, my recommendation would be just call his bluff. Don't play his game. Hey, you want to buy Twitter for all cash? You want to pay $54 a share? Here, take it. You can have the company. Then see what happens, right? Because then I think he's going to have to shut up because he doesn't have the money. Just like he put out that tweet when he was taking Tesla private, he already had the price, the financing was lined up. No, it wasn't. It was all made up. The same thing is happening now. He is laughing at the media. He's laughing at Twitter. He's having a great time, and he's probably going to walk away from this with a lot of money. Now, is he going to get sued? Sure, he's already been sued. He'll probably get sued again if he sells, but... That he can afford. He really can't afford to buy Twitter, but he can afford to pay the legal fees on these lawsuits, especially when he makes so much money dumping the shares of Twitter that he helped pump up.
I want to wrap up today's podcast by explaining why I decided to upload the Peter Schiff Show podcast to locals a day before I post it to Schiff Radio or YouTube. My purpose is twofold. First of all, ever since I started introducing advertising on the podcasts, people have complained that they don't like the ads. For many years, I did my podcast without any ads whatsoever, but then I decided to make the podcast a business rather than a hobby. Sure, it wasn't purely a hobby because a lot of my clients at Euro-Pacific listen to the podcast, and sometimes people who listen to the podcast became clients, so there was a business angle, but the podcast itself was more of a hobby than a business. But now that it has advertising, it generates revenue, and it's a business, and I can grow it like a business. But I also want to make sure that my podcast reaches the largest possible audience. And oftentimes, I'm very busy during the day, especially when the markets are open. And sometimes I don't even get around to recording the podcast until pretty late. And then it takes even longer to upload it. And sometimes out here in Puerto Rico, the internet slows down, there are delays, and the podcast doesn't go up till 10, 11, sometimes 12 o'clock at night, Eastern time. And I think when that happens, my audience is diminished. What our research shows is the podcasts that get the most amount of listens are the ones that are released earlier in the day. So I decided to kill two birds with one stone and post my podcasts the day I record them, no matter how late, on locals, and then hold them back and release them the following day at 1 o'clock Eastern at a time where I think I'll reach the widest possible audience. And so that means that people who don't like the commercials, they don't have to listen if they don't want to. They can listen on locals. And for those people who really don't want to wait until the following day, they don't mind staying up late and listening to my podcast. They would rather get the information the day I post it. Well, now they have that alternative too. It's just that people who don't want to listen to ads and who want to get it the day I record it, all they have to do is pay $5 a month. It's not a big ask. It's not a lot of money. When people listen commercial-free or a day early, they're not listening to the other podcasts where the commercials are. And so my commercial revenue goes down because I have fewer listeners. But the way I make up for that is those listeners who don't want the commercials pay a little extra to enjoy the benefit of not having to fast forward through them. And in this way, I'm hoping to maximize the reach of the podcast. I want to get even more listeners to the free version because we're releasing it at a better time of the day while getting additional listeners on locals. So if you don't want the commercials and you want to listen to these podcasts right after I record them, join my Locals community. 